How's everybody? Yeah, that's not a rhetorical question. Good. Well, I'm glad you came back. I wasn't really sure after my sermon last week. You know, like, did I mess them up too much? So this is encouraging. You're here. We're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 13, but God takes the long way home. Before we get started with the sermon and get started even reading the scripture, let's pray and ask the Father and the Spirit to be present and working in us this morning. Oh Lord, you are a good, good Father. You are kind, you are merciful, and you are generous. And it is from those traits of your generous mercy that we ask you to be present here in this room with us, that you ask you to be present, your spirit at work in each of us, opening our hearts, opening our minds, opening our souls to be able to hear the words that you would have us here this morning, to know and understand what it is about you that we need to see and understand about you and about who we are and about why you love us so much. And we pray, Father, that you would just be at work here. I ask that you would open up the words of my mouth, that they would speak the words that you have chosen and that everyone, including myself, needs to hear. And we ask it because you are a good father who desires to give good things to your children. And believing that you want to do this, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's open up to Exodus chapter 13. Starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by the day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Okay. So, all right, I get this. You don't want to take the people the short route, right? The quick route is to go up through the land of the Philistines and then enter into the promised land. They're not ready for that. Okay. And so you decide you're going to take them the long way because they're not really ready for battle. They're not ready for warfare. But then there's this weird phrase, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So which is it? They're equipped for battle or they're not ready for battle? I mean, this doesn't make sense to me. Well, I mean, how can they be equipped for battle but not ready for battle? How does this work? Hmm. Well, I think the uh, 
recent conflict in Ukraine helps us to understand how this works. The Russian army were clearly equipped, but they weren't properly prepared for battle. In the same way, the Israelites are standing here outside the land of Egypt, getting ready to go into the promised land that God had said they were going to have, and they're equipped for battle. They've got the stuff. They've got all the stuff that they need to fight a war. But they're not prepared to fight a war. And so, okay, fine. They're not ready to fight a war. So you're going to take them a different way. All right. And we see that this is actually the case. That here you have a group of people that even though they're equipped, they're not ready for the battle that they're going to be facing. And we see it in the very next paragraph. You go to chapter 14 and look at verses 10 through 12. And what does it say? That when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Okay, there's nothing wrong with being afraid when you see a really big army that's really good at fighting coming at you, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But what happens next shows how unprepared they are for warfare. Verse 11, they, the people of Israel who've got all this good stuff for fighting a war, they said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Okay. Clearly, you people aren't ready for this. I mean, you remember how bad slavery was, right? You do remember that, don't you? And just because you see the Egyptians marching at you, your response is, it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt and die there. Oh, Lord, Lord, we got a long way to go. Look, the issue for the Israelites is not that they were not equipped. It's just they're not ready. But it's more than just being not ready for warfare. They're not ready to enter the promised land. They're not ready to go where God wants to take them and where he's promised them that they can go. See, their issue had less to do with the combat training and more to do with the attitude of their hearts. Look, this response in, in chapter 14, verse 11 and 12, this response shows a heart attitude of people who still don't trust God. They still, this is stunning to me. I mean, this is absolutely shocking and stunning to me. They still don't believe he can do the job that he said he's going to do. Now, wait a minute. You people just watched the 10 plagues take place in Egypt. And for most of them, you didn't have that problem, right? When you go back and read the 10 plagues in the previous chapters, most of them, you hear this phrase, but not in the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites were. So everybody else is getting hammered with frogs and hail, but not the people of Israel. And then on top of that, you witness the whole 
death of the firstborn thing. But none of yours died. And you still don't trust him yet? Like, what is going on here? This is crazy. This is insane. I mean, at what, I mean, I, I mean, if I was God, I'd be like, geez, what else do I have to do to earn your trust? What else do I have to do before you will believe I can do what I say I'm going to do? But, I mean, that's easy for us to say that. It's easy for me to say that, right? Until I remember, well, wait a minute. I sort of doubted him and didn't quite trust him either just a few weeks ago, right? I mean, it's okay as long as it's the people in the pages who are having unpleasant things happen to them. But wait a minute, it's a whole different story when unpleasant things start to happen to me in real life. And we see this same process play out in all the major characters of Scripture, right? God calls them. They start out with this great hope and promise. And then they have to go through this long period of humbling and humility through hardship. Yet, often, God is still miraculously providing for them and protecting them, even in the midst of this time of humility and hardship. We see it with David, right? I mean, David starts out with things really pretty awesome, right? I mean, Samuel comes to his house and pours oil on his head and says, you're going to be the next king. He then goes and kills Goliath. Then he goes and becomes a part of the, one of the lead commanders in Saul's army and the army of Israel. And Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I mean, the people are even singing his praises. He's so good at it, right? And everything he does is just golden. He literally can't lose in everything he's doing. And then Saul gets jealous, right? And Saul decides he's going to kill David. And David has to go on the run and live like a fugitive for a long time. Hiding in the wilderness of Zen, hiding out in the desert in Engedi, all these different places, right? And oh, by the way, while he's doing all this, Saul's always hunting for him. Yet God is miraculously protecting David and keeping Saul from finding him. We see that over and over as you read through the narrative in First Samuel. And then, you know, and it's not, it's more than just David and his guys and his band of misfits are, you know, hanging out in these desert places. I mean, they have some unpleasant stuff happen to them. They go out and do some raiding, right? This is all kind of weird, but they do out and do some raiding, right? They go on a raid. They're going to go kill some Philistines. And while they're gone, another group comes into their home city and sacks it, burns it, and takes all their wives and kids away. I mean, that I've never lived through that kind of experience, but it sounds like a pretty unpleasant experience to me. I would assume that it is, right? That you, know, you're, you, come home, you come home and the house is burned down and everybody's gone. Oh, that's not going to be a good day. And even some of David's men were so mad they wanted to kill David. But what did David do? This is one of the amazing contrasts in between Saul and David through as you go through the book of 1 Samuel. David, instead of doing what Saul, what would Saul have done? Saul would have just 
taken matters into his own hands. But David doesn't do that. David stops and inquires of the Lord, going, what's going on here and what do you want me to do? And as a result of his stopping and asking God what he wants, David experiences this tremendous, amazing victory over the very people who burned down his house, the whole city, and took all of his wives and children as hostages. And then, of course, later Saul is killed and David becomes king and starts the great Israeli dynasty in that period. But not before this long period, very long period of hardship and humility. David took a very long road from the anointing of oil that he received from Samuel in Bethlehem to his coronation in Jerusalem. He took a very long way home once he was set out on the run. We see the same thing in Jesus' life too. I mean, look at Jesus. uh, Jesus comes to the earth and then he spends three long years in his public ministry on the earth. Then he receives his crowning moment of glory through the resurrection and the ascension into heaven. And during that three years, you know, Capernaum was kind of his home operation base, but he didn't really have a home. What did he say to the rich man? Foxes of the fields have a home, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. It's a euphemism for meaning he doesn't have his own home. He doesn't have, he doesn't even own a house. He doesn't even have a rental house that he calls his own. He's always constantly moving. And we know the Pharisees were just constantly annoying him. You read through the Gospels, and one of the things that's just so clear is just how annoyed he gets with the Pharisees. Before they even reach the point where all they want to do is trap him, and it's just some kind of game they're playing with him, even before that point, he's annoyed with the Pharisees because they just don't get it. They're still stuck in the past. We see the same thing with the Apostle Paul. We see the same thing with many of the great men of church history. Look, Athanasius is one of my heroes. You probably never heard of his name. He was the Bishop of Alexandria in the third century. And he was one of the same things. Started out with this incredibly bright, incredibly smart, just amazing mind and amazing intellect. And was taken in by, at that time, the Bishop of Alexandria and taught and trained and rose and prepared to become the next Bishop of Alexandria. And then he sort of burst onto the, to the scene at the Council of Nicaea where the deity of Christ was being denied. And that was the whole thing, right? Jesus, well, you know, he's really just a created being like the rest of us. And the guys who were making this claim, they were playing the game They would say it one way to one person, but a different way to another person because they never really wanted to say what they really felt, thought, and meant out loud and be clear. And it was Athanasius who kept kept questioning them, kept boxing them in until he finally got them to the place where they had to say it out loud. No, we don't believe that he is divine. He is just a created being like the rest of us. And everybody, you know, and so, and that was a huge turning point in that moment 
And from that moment, everybody recognized what this group was trying to do, and they completely rejected it. And the Emperor Constantine even went so far as to tell these guys if they didn't recount what they said and deny it as their belief and change their minds, he was going to put them to death. But then, as often is the case, the leaders of the Roman Empire changed. And instead of Constantine, you get a guy who is not so excited about Jesus and Christianity. And as a result, Athanasius was pursued and hunted like an animal for the majority of his adult life. Yet, God was miraculously protecting him all the while. There's even the the story of Athanasius' life. There's even a point where he's in Alexandria in the church there. He's teaching, preaching in a worship service like this. The authorities know, the Roman authorities know that he's, that's where he's going to be. He's there. He's always there at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. I'm, we know he's going to be there. So they send guards. They send soldiers coming to get him. But someone sees them coming and runs in and tells Athanasius. And as they're coming in the front door, Athanasius miraculously walks out the back door and escapes. In fact, he runs down to the river, gets into a boat, and starts with another group of, with a group of guys rowing the boat to get it away from this group of soldiers. They see them, see him trying to escape in a boat, go find a ship and start chasing him. Right? I mean, you're talking about God's miraculous protection over an individual. Here's a group of guys that just saw him run out of the church, and they're not going to go chase him down on the river. But they kind of lose sight of the boat at one point, and they come around to Ben. And, you know, I mean, the big ship's going to catch the small boat with two or three guys rowing, right? You're not going to get away from the big ship using the sails. And they pull up next to Athanasius's little boat, and they say, we're looking for Athanasius. Have you seen him? I mean, he's, you can sort of imagine this scene, right? Wait a minute, they don't know it's me. Yeah, their boat went on that way. We saw him, he's just ahead of you. And the ship takes off. And they didn't even, they were looking right at him and didn't recognize that's the guy they were chasing. How does that happen? I mean, it wasn't, they just seen him, you know, an hour earlier. That's the miraculous hand of God protecting Athanasius from the legion of the Roman army, even when they caught up with him. And fortunately for Athanasius, Politics, once again, and political leaders changed again. And he was able to return and have a peaceful life and died in peace. Once again, training up a whole legion of faithful and biblically truthful and honest and accurate priests and theologians for the early church in the 400s. I mentioned we saw it with Paul's life and the way that he was miraculously protected but yet he had to go through this long period of humility. There's some estimates that Paul was, was, was in Tarsus for almost 10 years between the time he left Jerusalem and the time that Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him back to Antioch, which is the beginning of Paul's phenomenal ministry. 10 years in Tarsus waiting to become Paul the Apostle. Paul took a long road to becoming who he was supposed to be. So 
Why did God do this? Why did God take them away from the, the short route, but takes them the long way home to the promised land? Well, their hearts weren't ready is one thing. But the other reason why he did this is God is showing his might and glory over those who think they are his equal. Look, one of the problems that the Egyptian pharaohs had, especially at this point in Egyptian history, is they really believed their own press. Right? Like, you know, they really thought they were God. They really believed it. I mean, look, right, human, they're, they're just as human as the rest of us. And if someone tells you day after day after day after day for years and years how phenomenally awesome you are, guess what you're going to do? You're going to start to believe it. I really am awesome. Yes, that's correct. I am awesome. I mean, it's kind of like King Julian from uh, Madagascar series, right? Aren't you lucky to have me? (laughs) They... They really believed it. They really thought they were gods, which is really perplexing to me because they still had to go to the bathroom like everybody else and they still had to eat like everybody else, but yet they thought they were, they really believed they were gods. I mean, that's just, a, it's how easy it is to be delusional and believe a lie. They thought they were gods. And so Pharaoh's thinking, what am I doing? I mean, you can imagine the thought process that Pharaoh's having here. A, I've been embarrassed by a bunch of slaves. B, I now no longer have my slaves and I got to do my own stuff. And C, the people are mad that they don't have their slaves. So we're going to go back and get our slaves. This was dumb to let them go. We're going to go back and get them. And what does God say to Moses? we got to go backwards to the beginning of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamped in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For, or because, Pharaoh will say of the people Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And then I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And so they did so. So catch, this is, the last line there is important. There in verse 4. Not the part about God that gets glory over Pharaoh. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. There's the real purpose of Israel's not going by the land of the Philistines. I shouldn't say the real purpose. That's one of the biggest purposes of the Israelites, not going by way of the Philistines, but coming backwards, looking like they're lost, wandering around in the desert without a clue what they're doing, is so that Pharaoh will bring out the army, and then everything that we know happens in the next chapter with the Red Sea parting and Moses and the Israelites crossing over and then the Egyptian army rushing in and the sea closes back in over the top of it. All of that is so the Egyptians will know that God is God. Yes, he has the benefit of putting Pharaoh in his place and showing him that he's not God anymore. But Pharaoh's not his main target. His main target is the people of Egypt themselves. He wants them to know that he is really God. 
which raises a very important question. Why does God care that the Egyptians know he is God? Why does he care about them? Because he created them too. They are his children. They're not the same as the Israelites, but they're still his children. He still cares about the Egyptians. He still wants the Egyptians to know him and to love him and to worship him. Not because he's jealous, all right, or he has an image problem and he has to have people worship him because he knows that their worshiping of the false idols is killing their souls. Anytime any of us worship something other than God, our souls shrivel like a prune in the open sun. And he knows this is happening to the Egyptians and he, he loves and cares about the Egyptian people just as much as he cares about anybody else. And he wants them to know the soul-refreshing, glorious, joyous elation of worshiping the one true God who can satisfy the longing of their hearts. That's why he cares about the Egyptians. Because anything less than him just leaves you empty. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's mine. Worshiping an idol is like eating a cheese puff. To me, I hate it because I bite into it with all this hope and expectation and I get just a touch of cheese flavor and it feels like I'm biting into air. It feels like, I feel like I've been cheated. Wait, where did it go? It's gone and I got nothing but a wee little bit of cheese. The, the cheese puff Cheeto tiger lied to me. He made me think this was going to be fantastic and I feel like I've been cheated. That's, that's what it's like to worship an idol. The promise of everything but the delivery of nothing. And that's why he cares about who and what we worship because he knows that it leaves us empty. And he cares enough even about the Egyptians to show them who he really is so they will come and worship him. Now, he could have done that in a lot of different ways. He didn't have to choose to do this with the Israelites, putting them like they had a kind of had a a mildly unpleasant experience. Right. I mean, walking around in the desert, acting like you're lost is never fun, even when you're not really lost. Right. And suddenly seeing a big army that's really, really good at fighting and killing, chasing after you is not fun. I never really want to be in a position where a really good army that's really good at killing people is chasing me. That's not a fun experience, even if they never touch you. But he did do it this way. And one of the reasons he did it this way is he was involving the Israelite people in what he was doing, just like he does us. God chooses to involve us in his plans so that we get to see him at work. Yet often, unfortunately, this means we have to take the long way home to get there. An example of this, again, it's not a great one, but it's the one I've got for you today. A few weeks ago, we were back in Louisville, Kentucky, visiting our daughter and son-in-law and and playing with the grandbabies. We really went to see the grandbabies. It was just seeing the daughter and son-in-law was bonus material, right? I mean, we just it's just to be honest, right? There's no sense to pretend. Anybody in here with grandchildren know exactly what we're talking about. We just went there for the grandkids. 
Well, my phone started acting up while we were there in Louisville. And it was like, okay, this is driving me nuts. I don't want to be trapped and caught in a place where it just quits completely. So I decided, you know, I should go to the Verizon store. There's one right next to their house. Not very far at all, just a couple of miles away. I should go there and just get a new phone. I'll just, but you know, it's going to take a couple of hours probably. And I don't want to lose time with with the grandkids and stuff. And like, oh, I shouldn't do this. But I just had this, I had this compulsion, this sense of, of, even though my head was saying, no, don't do it. Everything else in my body was saying, go to the store, Verizon store and get a new phone. And so I did. I right. I'm on a mission. I'm going to get in there. I'm not going to play games with these boys. I'm going to get my new phone. I'm getting out of there because I've got grandkids to play with. Well, what I didn't realize at the time was that God was taking me on a long trip to get back to the grandkids. And for three hours, I sat in that store with Antoine, answering his questions about God and the Bible. These weren't bad questions. They weren't. He just, he just had never had a person who could answer tough questions, right? Tough questions are the things where you can't point to an exact verse in the Bible that tells you exactly what you should and shouldn't do, right? Like, it's easy to, to answer the question, should I go to church or not? Because you, put, you point right to Corinthians and it says, do not forsake the assembling together yourselves. Okay, that's clear. It's a clear answer. But what about a, but should I keep going to this church when they keep telling me stuff that doesn't sound right? That's not so obvious of an answer. It takes time working through those. It takes time understanding. He says, how am I supposed to know what God wants me to do? Right? You're not going to find a verse in scripture that answers that. That as we all know, it takes time. It takes growing in our faith. It takes growing in our relationship with the Lord to be able to know when he says that he wants us to do something or to know what it is he wants us to do. And so spending three hours with Antoine wasn't my goal that morning. But by his mercy and grace, I recognized this was a divine appointment that the Lord had created that's why I felt such a compulsion to go to that store, even though intellectually it made no sense to do this. And as a result, I was blessed at watching what the Lord was doing in this young man's life. And I got, it's, it, missionaries describe it this way. If you ever talk to missionaries, they'll say this is people think we're superstars or something super special. He says, we really aren't. We just get to sit on the front row and watch what God does. That's what I got to do that morning with Antoine. I got to sit on the front row and watch what the Lord was doing in him, both before I got there and while we were there together. Look, did God need me to do this? No. He could have, through the power of the Spirit, instantly dealt with every question and issue that Antoine had in his mind without any human intervention at all. But God, in his infinite mercy and loving kindness, chose to involve me in what he was going to do that day so that I got to see what he was doing and be a part of what he was doing. Look, God invites us to go with him 
for the same reason that any parent invites one of their children to go with them on something they're going to do. All of us know that if we decide to do something, it'll happen a lot faster if we don't invite our children to come with us, right? I mean, no matter what it is, I just want to go to the store and buy a gallon of milk. That's going to be a whole lot faster if I go by myself versus inviting one of the children to come with me to go get this gallon of milk. But I take them with me sometimes because I know that we need to do this together. I want them to come with me so that we can build our relationship together and so that I can teach them some things. And, and as I discovered, as my children would grow up and as what I discovered was that oftentimes driving in the car was when they would ask the really good questions, the questions you really want them to ask about life, about why certain things are the way they are. And it opened the doors for incredible opportunities. And my experience has been that that's the same way today with adults, right? I mean, the best conversations I have are with friends that we just get in the car to go somewhere. Now, I don't have an agenda to, to, to have a biblical, spiritual conversation with my friend. But for some reason, that's what happens once we get in the car. And it is a glorious and joyous experience to have this phenomenal moment with my friend in the car. But that wasn't what I started out doing that day. We were just headed out to Chatfield Lake to do some fun stuff. But yet this incredible opportunity for a spiritual conversation took place. And it was a blessing to both of us. And I was, I was joyed at being able to be a part of what God's doing in his heart in that moment. The other thing about this is that when God takes us on a journey, we often cannot tell what's happening in that moment. There's a story that some of you probably heard about the Chinese farmer. He is uh, living in a small village, very poor family. One day they're out working in the field and his horse gets loose and escapes and runs away. That evening, many of his neighbors come around and says, this is bad. We're so sorry that you've lost your horse. This is bad. And his response is, maybe. The next day the horse comes back but it brings 10 wild horses with it. And so now this guy went from one horse to 11 and his friends come over that evening and say, this is fantastic. Congratulations. We are so happy for you. This is good. Mm, maybe the next day, his son is working with one of the wild horses to try and tame it and make it useful as a farm animal. And in the course of his working with this wild horse, he gets thrown and breaks his leg. That evening, his friends and neighbors come over. Oh, this is so bad. I'm so sorry for you. This is not good. Maybe. The next day, the conscription officials for the Chinese army come through the village, collecting all the young men to take them and force them into the army because of the war that they're about to fight. But they come up to the farmer's son, who's now got a broken leg, and they pass over him and skip him for the conscription service because... Soldiers with broken legs aren't very useful on the battlefield. And his friends come over that night and tell the Chinese farmer, oh, this is good. We're so happy for you. Maybe. The point is, is when something happens, you don't really know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. 
we kind of have ideas in our minds about something being good or something not being good. But at the end of the day, we really don't know whether that is something good or bad for us. Like when my phone first started screwing up in Louisville, I thought this is bad. But it wasn't. The phone screwing up was how the Lord put me in a place where I could watch him be at work in Antoine's life. That was good. But then it was bad because I missed several hours of playing with the grandkids. But it was okay because in the end they were sleeping anyway. The same is true for all of us. At any given moment, something that looks like it's bad, maybe it is, maybe it's not. We don't know until this thing plays out further down the road whether it's good or bad. Many of you are comprehending that in this church at this moment. The other thing about this passage and about God taking the Israelites the long way home is that it's bigger than just getting from one place to another. Right? Look at verse 19. Moses takes the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. We talked about Joseph last week, remember? Joseph not only had to sojourn in Egypt for several decades, he had to wait several centuries to go home. And the Israelites had to take his bones out of Egypt and carry them with them back to the promised land. Their part of the reason the people of Israel left Egypt was so that Joseph could experience the fulfillment of the promise from God that he would rest with his father in the promised land. If you remember at the end of Genesis, Joseph's father dies and they all travel back to Canaan and bury him in the family burial plots and then come back to Egypt to live for the rest of the famine. And Joseph is promised that he will get to rest there with his fathers. And when he dies, he, as it says here, he promised the Israelites, made the Israelites promise that they would take him and deliver him to rest in the promised land. And he had to wait several centuries for that promise to come true. And part of the purpose for the people of Israel was to keep that promise to Joseph. See, Jesus also gives us a similar idea when he talks about salvation in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter in it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The long way is not always about us. Sometimes it's about those around us. And for God to show us his glory, to open our minds and to see his truth, and sometimes we must walk a hard and narrow path. Look, I'm just like everybody else. I want the straight, level, concrete sidewalk. But sometimes God takes, takes us down the uneven, narrow hiking trail through the field. Okay. Our whole life on this earth is ultimately about the long way home. Look, it would be easy, right? The easy, quick route would be we listen to the preacher. We trust in Jesus. We put our faith in him. We become saved. And then we die and go straight to heaven. 
That'd be the quick way, right? But that's not what God does. Instead, the God of heaven and earth takes us on this long pilgrimage here on the earth. And he does it because there's things about him he wants us to understand before we get to heaven. There are things that he's wanting to do through us as a blessing to others while we're here. So he takes us on the long road back home. There are people around us that we can bless because we're on the long road home. If it's a quick road home, you just don't get to bless that many people. But the long road, you can be a blessing to others. However, thankfully, praise Jesus, while we're on this long road home, we are not alone. He is with us. Go back to Exodus chapter 13. Sorry, I should have told you to keep your fingers there. Look at verse 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. 24-7 he was with them. There was never a moment that he wasn't with them. And so are we, right? Even on our long journey, there's never a moment he's not with us. The promise in John chapter 14, I'll just read it to you real fast. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He's always with us. Even when we're on the long way home. Because he has the spirit given to us, we are indwelled, sanctified, anointed, and gifted for this road that we must travel. It's not just that that he's with us, not leaving us alone on this road. He also gives us what we need to walk the road. See, to have the Spirit is to have God Himself. To know Him and to be a part of what He's doing and to enjoy that fellowship. Look, it's just like when our parents would invite us to join them in something or we would invite our children to join us in something. God can get it done a whole lot faster if we're not going along with Him. But out of His great love for us, He brings us with him on the things that he is doing. And at the end of the day, that's really what our road home is always doing. It's always us walking with him on something he is doing so that we can enjoy him and he can be a blessing and joy to us. And that's all possible because of the spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, empowering us, sanctifying us and gifting us for the road that we travel. Look, To have the Spirit, we must receive Him. And we can't receive Him until we've asked for Him. And so, my simple question is this. Have you asked for the Spirit? Have you asked for the Father to walk with you? Whether it's trusting in Christ for the first time, 
are as a sanctified believer truly asking for the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in us and to be completely under his control and influence, listening to him and looking for his leading in our hearts, minds, and souls. If you haven't asked for that, today's a good day to do that. In fact, right now is a really good time to do that, to ask to be filled with him for all that you need, not just so that things will go good for you, but so that you will know the joy and the delight of him with you and us. That's my encouragement, my plea to you this morning. Ask him to come and dwell within you. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good father. And because you are a good father, we want to walk with you on the road that you've sent us down to travel. And we pray and ask that you would come and be completely with us and that we would be completely with you. Losing all the distractions that prevent us from intimate, deep, rich fellowship with you and experiencing the joy that can only come from knowing you and loving you. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.